Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> Christ is risen. Amen. Turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 37. We'll start reading at verse 21. Last week we looked at the brothers' plot to kill Joseph, and now we look at the attempted murder. But before we begin, let's ask once again the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask that you would help us as we look at this familiar passage of scripture, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might see Jesus, that uh, we would be encouraged in our faith as we go through your word. We ask in your name, amen. Genesis 37, verse 21. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. So the brothers have been plotting and planning to kill Joseph. And Reuben seems to be absent, and he comes on this gathering of the brothers, and he hears it must have been somewhat shocking to him, a plan to kill their own brother. And he, perhaps he'd been out on an errand, uh, tending sheep, buying supplies. We're not sure why he's not there. But he shows up after the plan has been hatched, and he attempts to rescue Joseph. And we have to ask, why does he do this? After all, he's... Uh, the one most likely to have the greatest resentment against Joseph. He's, after all, the firstborn. It's obvious that Jacob plans to give uh, the birthright to another firstborn, the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. So you would think that he would be pretty bitter. So why does he do this? Is Is he just being the responsible elder brother? Is he trying to make up for past mistakes? Or was he truly motivated by real compassion? Well, whatever the motive is, he acts. And he has to act act quickly because Joseph is on his way. And like an attorney pleading for his client before a jury, he argues his case. First of all, he appeals to the law of God, which they surely knew. He says, Don't shed any blood. Here he's quoting Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Second, he then suggests that rather than shedding his blood, that let's just toss our brother into a pit, which, of course, he could then die of thirst or other things, but at least we won't have blood on our hands. But he had planned to come back maybe later that night, maybe in the next day or two, and secretly rescue him. And significantly, he says, he plans to deliver him back to his father. So despite Jacob's favoritism, or because of his favoritism, Reuben knowing that his father truly does love Joseph greatly, 
he acts in consideration of Jacob. And obviously, he would have had to keep this quiet. He's not going to share this with anybody. He's hiding it from his brothers. And years later, it appears that Joseph indicates that he remembers Reuben's actions. For when he holds uh, one of the brothers captive in prison, he doesn't choose the oldest, Reuben, but he chooses the next oldest, Simeon. And so Reuben succeeds. He persuades them not to kill Joseph. But he does it by trickery, a duplicitous argument, rather than just straightforward moral leadership. As the eldest, he should have been the leader. When he says, don't shed blood, and by the way, if you try to shed blood, you're going to have to kill me too, because I'm going to protect him to the death. He doesn't do that. Instead, he resorts to a secret plan. And perhaps he is not respected by the other brothers because of his grievous sin that he had committed previously with Billah. Genesis thirty-five twenty-two. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So when Joseph finally makes his way to the camp, once again, Reuben doesn't seem to be there, as we find out later in verse 29. Again, we're left to speculate, why is he not there? Is he distressed at the whole situation and he's tired of arguing with his brothers? Seems like nobody's taking care of the flocks and maybe he's the designated go-to guy and he's out taking care of the sheep. Or maybe it's just part of his plan that he'd made his argument, he'd won the day, and so he's off and he's on a little bluff overlooking the proceedings and he's going to come back at an appropriate moment. But with Reuben gone and Joseph arriving, the brothers swing into action. And we have a succession of verbs here that convey speed and roughness of the brothers' actions. First, they strip him, and they took him. They cast him, and then later in verse 25, we see that they then sit down. So first of all, they strip off his coat, confirming that indeed it was that coat of many colors that he was wearing, and the reason why they were able to recognize him so far away and begin planning their wicked, sinful deed. And the Hebrew word here for stripped implies force. In a jealous rage, despite their agreement with Reuben to not kill him, they didn't agree to not harm him. And they probably not only tear the cloak to tatters, but they probably start to rough him up. The word also here uh, implies removal of inner garments. So it's very possible that they don't just strip his coat off, but they strip everything off and that he's left naked. Then they took him. You know, often once one contemplates doing a particular sin, especially a violent sin or a sin that you really know is against your conscience, 
The emotions are initially kept in check. But once the deed begins, once you put your hand to the task, restraints fall away, and things can get really ugly, especially among groups. If you do any reading of history of the Old West and you read about a lynching, the lynching party, the group together, feeds on themselves. Or if you've read any history of the French Revolution and the horrors that were committed, just one person doing one particular act leading to many suffering the fate of the guillotine. So the simple word took him probably just scratches the surface. We can easily imagine they start slugging him. There's blows, there's pushing, there's spitting, there's jeering, taunting, cursing, a full board demonstration of hatred just belching forth out of their hearts. Matthew Henry writes in regards to this passage, where envy reigns, pity is banished, and humanity itself is forgotten. Proverbs 27, verse 4, Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Joseph is not able to stand at all before the wrath of his brethren. And then he's cast into a pit. They dump him, almost like a dead body, into a pit. And this pit, as we mentioned earlier, uh, in Dothan was probably cut out of limestone and was for watering, for agricultural purposes, used for storing water. And some of these pits could be very, very muddy, as Jeremiah discovered when he was imprisoned in a cistern. And without Moses telling us that the cistern was dry, we almost would think that there might be a a chance of Joseph drowning in the pit. So to toss him into the pit meant they were fully committed to murder. A dry pit meant no water to drink, no access to food. He could starve. And he wasn't carefully lowered into this pit for sure. He was tossed. He could have broken a bone or two. And of course, he would have been hidden from view. And your buddy passing by at a distance would have no idea somebody was in the bottom of the pit. And if he was indeed naked, he would have been exposed to sunburns, heat exhaustion, blisters. And there was also the risk of the cistern. If it had been dry for a long time and if he tried to climb out of the pit, it could have easily collapsed on him. He could have been buried alive. And the irony is that the brothers are throwing throwing him into the pit to kill him, when whereas what's actually happening By doing that deed, they're saving him and saving themselves. For he will indeed be rescued, sold into slavery. Where in Egypt, he will rescue his family from famine, including his would-be murderers. Furthermore, here is Joseph, who proves himself to be an obedient, honorable responsible son. And what's his reward? He gets thrown in a pit. He is persecuted. 
and often the case that is true for us. We do the right thing, we obey the Lord, and we're persecuted by unbelievers, by our family, by friends. As has been bandied about our church for many a year, no good deed goes unpunished, and oftentimes that is the case. But this is just the beginning. All along the way of Joseph's life, in the next few years, he is going to be punished, persecuted for doing good. He's faithful to Potiphar, gets thrown into prison. He interprets a cupbearer's dream, he's forgotten. But this is all under God's providence, just as is our persecution, as well as the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. God sees both the evil and the good. As Proverbs 15.3 tells us, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The eye here signifies that he does indeed see everything and that he is present in every situation. Every situation in every place, he is omniscient, he's omnipresent, he knows all, he's not limited by time or space. And beholding implies that he's evaluating. And not just evaluating, but also that he will respond to every person in every situation in righteousness and holiness. In other words, it's a promise that he's beholding the evil and the good that, as Genesis 18 tells us, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Our God will judge in Joseph's situation, and he will judge rightly in all of our situations. And of course, we can't help but think of Jesus, our Lord, when we read these verses. Because he too was stripped naked, exposed. He is also left thirsty. But we also can't help but think that Joseph's brothers mirror and foreshadow how Christ will be treated by unbelievers and sinners. With a seared conscience, they will put Christ our Lord to death. They will rebel against him. They will be filled with hatred. But whereas our Lord was prepared for his death, Joseph was not. He's taken unaware. He probably showed up. He comes upon the, the camp of his brothers and he says, Hey guys, how's it going? They all stand up. He must have noticed that nobody's smiling. There's a little unease that creeps into his heart. Then all of a sudden they attack him. And he gets an unexpected taste of the wrath of man. He is caught in the grip of sinners. He must have been in shock. Why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this? Thoughts of their past must have gone through his mind, the favoritism. He is indeed taken unaware. Verse 25. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. So we have the last of our action verbs here. They sat down. They callously sit down to eat, perhaps enjoying a meal of one of their very own 
sheep slaughtered the, the fatted lamb. Apparently the brothers are completely not bothered at all by what has just happened of throwing Joseph into the pit. Their seared conscience did not stop them from just sitting down and having a meal. We could paraphrase Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20 this way. Such is the way of an adulterous woman, murderous brothers. She eateth and wipeth her mouth. They throw him in a pit and sit down to bread and saith, I have done no wickedness. I have done no wickedness. Such hardness of heart. Such a simple little phrase sat down, filled with great drama and blackness and desperate consequences of sin. May we cry out to the Lord and may he have mercy upon us that we never have such a hard heart and that when we sin that we have a tender heart to the Lord. It makes us think of the scripture that we let not the sun go down on our wrath, that we may be on guard against anything that would begin to sear our conscience. Then God sends a diversion, not just for the sake of Joseph, but also for his brothers to keep them from committing bloodshed. And he takes the story into a, a new, unexpected direction. Behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead. So Gilead was a plateau east of the Jordan River, extending down to the Sea of Galilee, down through to the Dead Sea, if you know your geography. And where they're at, Dothan lies along the main trade route through the land of Palestine on one of the more famous trade routes called Via Maris. And it cuts down through across the Sea of Galilee, to the coast, all the way down into Egypt. And the men in the caravan are called both Ishmaelites and, later on, verse 28, Midianites. Because both Ishmaelites and Midianites were sons of Abraham. We know about Ishmael being born from Hagar. Sometimes we forget that after Sarah died, Abraham married again. Genesis 25, verse 1, Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him six sons, and one of the six sons was Midian. Now Ishmael was the son of Abraham, but not only was he rejected as the promised seed, but there was also an ominous prophecy given over Ishmael. Genesis 16, 12, And he will be a wild man, His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So we have another touch of irony here. Because even though Ishmael is not part of the chosen seed, the godly line, and despite living in conflict through the years with the sons of his half-brother Isaac, the rejected line of Ishmael is about to save the godly line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, their mutual great-grandfather. 
And they come with camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going down to carry it to Egypt. And spices, all kinds of different spices. We're not sure exactly what that might have been. Cinnamon, who knows. But also balm, resin from trees or plants. And then myrrh. And myrrh was gum from either a cystus plant or from the bark of a pistachio tree. And most of these gums or spices would have been used for medicinal purposes. You can't help but wonder if they ended up using them to treat Joseph on the way to Egypt. And later on, Jacob sends these very same spices to Joseph as a present to him when he is prime minister. Genesis 43.11, carry down the man a present, instructs Jacob to his sons, a little balm and a little honey spices and myrrh. And this is also, as we remarked last week, of God's remarkable and unremarkable providences, another example of that. So remarkable and amazing that just at the right time, the Lord sends these traitors to rescue Joseph out of his brother's hands. But there's also another little detail that sometimes we forget about that we overlook. They're on their way down to Egypt. They're not coming back from Egypt. They've been coming back from Egypt. Who knows where Joseph could have ended up? But they're going down to Egypt where he's supposed to go. Verse 26. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. So it appears that with the Ishmaelites on the horizon, the debate about Joseph reignites, despite their implied promise to Reuben, they are still bloodthirsty. Beating him up, throwing him into a pit is not enough, for they are still talking about killing him. As Judas says, what profit is if we slay our brother? Now, after seeing the traitors, Joseph, uh, excuse me, Judah has a different idea. He proposes that they sell Joseph. And as we will see in the next chapter, this is in keeping with his sinful character. For unlike Reuben, he has no plans to secretly go back down the road and try and buy Joseph back. There are no redeeming features about his proposal, only selfish benefits that appeal to his brothers. They say, yeah, that's a pretty good idea as they start to think through, oh, what does this mean? Well, this means, oh, Joseph is going to be gone. He's going to be out of our lives, which is really what they want. They want him gone. Also, If we spare his life, we we won't be guilty of murder. We won't have blood on our hands. And after all, he is our brother, and that counts for something. There's also the financial profit. They get to pocket a few coins. And even though the pit is described as being in the wilderness, there might have been chance that some passerby would have come by and rescued Joseph, and their goose would have been cooked. Perhaps even... 
the stranger that had met Joseph. Maybe he would have thought to himself, you know, I wonder whatever happened to that young man, Joseph, and I told him to find his brothers. I wonder if he needs some help. Maybe I'll go find him. And finally, to appease their bitter envy, they would never have to listen to Joseph's boastful, arrogant, offensive dreams again, or be afraid that they might actually be fulfilled. But make no mistake, their plan to sell Joseph is not a lesser crime here. They're committing kidnapping. The Mosaic law declares that they are guilty of a capital crime. Exodus 21, 16. And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. It's as if they actually murder him. Verse 28. Then there passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph in to Egypt. All this time, Joseph was pleading with his brothers. We know that because after his first confrontation with his brothers as prime minister, they speak among themselves regarding this incident. And we read in Genesis 42, verse 21, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. No doubt it was a great anguish of soul. He was, as we suggest, probably beaten up, bloodied, and bruised. And in the pit, he would have had a chance to think. And no doubt he also probably overheard his brother's discussion about him. Probably heard what Judah proposed in their plan to sell him, and it began to dawn on him what he was facing. He's going to be separated from his father. He's going to be separated from Benjamin, his brother. He's facing slavery, perhaps a lifetime of slavery, punctuated by bouts of violence. Maybe he begins to doubt his dream. Maybe he even forgets the dream or wonders whether this is going to ever happen. And so Joseph besought him. And the Hebrew word here for besought means to be gracious toward, to favor, to have mercy on. In other words, he's crying out at the top of his lungs, brothers, have mercy on me. For the first time in his life, He has reason to cry and to cry out. He'd been the favored son, and no doubt there had been many instances of favoritism besides the coat of many colors. Perhaps he was given the seat next to his father around the dinner table and given choice meats from what was being served. Maybe he had the easiest chores. He was promoted in the family business, so on and so forth. And now... He is tasting sorrow and suffering and pain. And as a godly young man, he cried out not only in anguish and soul to his brothers, but he would have cried out to his father, his heavenly father. But God said no 
to his cries. Similar to Christ, who asked, let this cup pass from me. And his father said, no. And God often says no to our own pleas in the depths of our deepest trials and despair. When we're physically suffering, when we're facing health challenges, when our children walk away from the Lord, when they turn and curse us, any trial that is an anguish of soul to us and we cry out for help and our Father says no. But that's because, just like Joseph, he has something good planned for us. Sometimes we don't understand, often we don't understand why we face great trials. Joseph would have been perplexed. He would have no clue what is going on. But what should his response be? What should our response be? The most opposite, difficult thing that we can imagine. James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Sometimes the only reason why we go through trials, to a certain extent, we could say, is for testing. And the question is, will we pass the test? Will we please our Heavenly Father? Will we bow in grateful, joyous submission to His providence, no matter what we face? But the brothers did not listen to Joseph. Their hearts were enraged and hardened to the point of committing murder. There's no way they're going to listen at this stage to the pleas of their victim. So the deal was struck. And they had no qualms at all about selling into slavery, just like they had no qualms about sitting down and eating bread. And Joseph is drawn up out of the pit, probably just as roughly as he was thrown in, and delivered over to the Midianites. And they paid the brothers 20 shekels, which was the price of a slave. History books tell us that 20 shekels was the typical price of male slaves between the age of five, you imagine being a slave at five, to 20 years old in the Babylonian period. In Mosaic law, we're told that the price of a mature slave was set at 30 pieces of silver. And again, we can't help but think of Christ here, who is also sold for 30 pieces of silver. But for shepherds, who might expect to earn maybe eight shekels a year, this is a pretty handy bonus. And they no doubt divided it up and pocketed the change. So they shake hands on the deal. It's a sale that will take Joseph to Egypt, bring great grief to his father, and also guilt upon the brothers. A guilt that will shape and mold their actions when they once again meet Joseph 20 years later. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it speaks to all of our lives. Doctrine and faith, life and practice, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And we thank you that you are indeed the sovereign God who is kind and loving and does indeed work all things together 
for our good. We pray that you would help us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.